thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we're continuing our study of the book of Deuteronomy and we are going to be covering chapters 23 through 25. Um, chapter 26 will be the last chapter in that series of uh, teaching that Moses gave the Israelites when they were at Moab. That is before they entered the Holy Land. So we're going to be entering, ending this next week. Uh, chapter 26 and 27, and then we'll be getting into heading into chapter 28, which is obviously one of the strongest uh, and uh, more striking chapter of the book of Deuteronomy overall. The um, so tonight is a continuation of the instructions that Moses has given the Israelites. But before I get into the details of those, uh, and I hope tonight to show you, in fact, how in, in some way, how the, these instructions work, because when you read them, they may seem to be a little bit haphazard. Um, he talks a little bit about that, and he jumps over here, and there seems to be no connection, but I hope to show you how that connection actually works. It's actually very pleasant. But before I do so, um, I'd like to uh, point your attention to a, a statement that came out of uh, the Vatican on actually November 7. So it, 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 it was uh, issued by Archbishop uh, uh, Gerhard Mueller, who is Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And he reiterated that the Vatican has yet not ruled on the alleged Marian apparitions in Medjugorje. And his, the Archbishop's concerns were made in a letter instructing American bishops not to allow uh, Ivan Dragicevic, a visionary from Medjugorje, to make a U.S. tour at the end of October, during which he was expected to receive apparitions. So that was canceled. Um, and again, Archbishop Mueller wishes to inform the bishops that one of the so-called visionaries, this is a quote, is scheduled to appear at certain parishes around the country, during which time he will make presentations regarding the phenomenon of Medjugorje. Uh, Archbishop Vigano wrote in a letter, it is anticipated moreover that Mr. Dragicevic would be receiving operations during these scheduled appearances. The letter continued, as you are aware, the Congregation Doctrine of the Faith is in the process of investigating certain doctrinal and disciplinary aspects of the phenomenon of Medjugorje. For this reason, the Congregation has affirmed that with regard to the credibility of these operations in question, all should accept the declaration dated 10 April 1991. That's a document from the bishops of the former Yugoslavia, which asserted that on the basis of research, it was not possible to state that there were apparitions of supernatural revelations. 
And then again, a reminder that uh, the clerics and the faithful are not permitted to participate in meetings, conferences, or public celebrations during which the credibility of such operations would be taken for granted. In order to avoid scandal and confusion, the letter concludes, Archbishop Mueller asks that the bishops be informed of this matter as soon as possible. So again, the ruling is not final one way or the other, but it is uh, a word of caution that was given by uh, the highest authority in the church under the Pope that uh, we we as a lady should not be participating in any event that would seek to portray these apparitions as if they have been confirmed and they have not yet been confirmed. So this does not speak to what one personally would like to do, that is maybe travel to Medjugorje. There is no such uh, prohibition, but uh, a priest should not be leading people in a pilgrimage to Medjugorje. And uh, there should not be, there should not be at this point any type of um, activity within the church that would then uh, present these um, events as if they have been authenticated by the church. So just a word of uh, caution. All that we're saying is that there should not be official activities happening in the church as if these apparitions have been concerned, uh, confirmed by the Vatican. At this point, right. that's not the case. Not like Lourdes, for for, yes, we cannot put, so bottom line, and that's something very important for both sides of this equation, we can't put Medjugorje on the same footstool as Lourdes or Guadalupe or Fatima or any of these apparitions that have been confirmed by the church. So keep that in mind. I know this issue is very hotly debated among a lot of Catholics. I'm not one of them. Uh, I'm very neutral on this. Uh, I'm just waiting to see what the church is going to say. That's all. That I, but again, from a principle of obedience, it's important for us not to become a pope and make a declaration one way or the other. Because I know quite a few people who assert with infallible authority that it is true and others who assert with the same infallible authority that it is not true. All right, so now let's move on. What I would like to do today is um, show you how these chapters actually work, and it's uh, quite um, interesting, uh, quite interesting to see how, it, um, how these topics connect to each other. So how many of you actually have taken the time to, let me ask this question, how many have taken the time to glance or try and read those chapters? Anyone has taken, all right. What was your experience trying to read those chapters, if I may ask? It's confusing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's hard, right? Yeah. Anybody else try to read those chapters? Okay. I, again, remember, I am, I'm talking here, but I don't, I, <laughs> I'm not better than Scripture itself. So if you're going to spend an hour here listening to me, you should spend an hour reading Scripture. Just a suggestion. Um, in any event, this is, um, these chapters tend to be, on the surface, very confusing because it would seem as if Moses is just jumping from one topic to the other. So I've listed here for you on these pages 21 topics that are essentially covered in those three chapters we're looking at. And if you try to read them, and I really encourage you to do so, you will find that there are confusing 
Why is he jumping from one to the other this way? So therefore, that led some people to think that, you know what, the Bible was stitched together by different, by an editor who kind of put stuff together. Well, if that was the case, this is a very lousy editor, because you can see that in chapter 23 and 24, that talks of marriage and talks of other things. Well, if you're an editor, why do you just kind of put all the stuff regarding marriage together? I mean, why keep it so dispersed the way it sounds it is, right? But I'm going to show you that actually this is not the case. This is absolutely not the case. This is a technique that Moses is using, which is very pleasing to the mind, to help people remember what he's talking about, because most of the people are not going to read this. They're going to hear it. And so he's connecting them using, in fact, a technique which is, which I'll call poetic echo. That is, there is an echo from one topic into the other using images which are connected. I'm going to show you this right now. So let's just look at this. The first one, the first topic is restriction of entry into the assembly. So here Moses is telling them who has the right to be a member of the assembly. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means in detail. But what he's basically saying is that physical impurity or if someone is not of... If, if someone is uh, essentially not a child in a married family, right? or if it is someone who's an Ammonite or a Moabite, these folks cannot be part of the assembly. All ancient cultures had that. We have it today here in the United States. If you're not born in the United States, you can be a president. Right? There's restrictions. So everybody had restrictions. He's basically dealing with those restrictions. Yes. The assembly means multiple things. The assembly can mean all of Israel, but more specifically, it also means the elders, those who issue judgments, those who elect a king, those who call for war. Essentially, the, uh, par- the, the members of Israel who are in governing, have, have governing powers. Yeah? Okay, so he starts talking about that, and then... He seems to be moving to something completely unrelated. He talks now about the sanctity of the military camp. Basically saying, if you are in war, you must keep the camp holy. And he goes into the details of what that means. And then he moves on to talk about the asylum for escaped slaves. Right? Here are three topics, and it seems to be a little bit haphazard, that seem to be not connected, right? Well, huh. this, is, this is how the a Semitic mind functions. In the first image, in the first um, um, teaching, what is Moses talking about? He's basically telling them, how do you keep the assembly pure? There are a number of things that cannot be part of the assembly because you must keep it pure. That's what he's saying in the first one. Yeah? That notion of purity now echoes into the second. The camp must be pure. And then, if you are in a military camp, it is because you are on a warpath. 
These are not standing military camps. They're not there forever and ever. You only have a military camp when you are on a war path. If you're on a war path, you're fighting some other nation. Yeah? During war with another nation, if there is a slave in that nation who can escape, he will. Hence the third topic. You give him asylum. So there is, in the, in the Semitic mind, a sort of poetic echo. You, you move from one image to the other, and you chain them this way. And we have something similar, in fact, in English. If you remember the song about there was a woman who swallowed a fly. A fly right? How many of you know that song? There was a woman who swallowed a fly. I think she'll, she's die, and then she'll die, and then, okay, then, then uh, she, she swallowed a fly, I don't know why. Then what did she do? She swallowed a spider. a spider to catch the fly. And then after that, then there's the bird, and then on and on it goes. It's a song that is chained this way, right? Every culture has them. Every culture has the sort of chaining of stories where, or in a story of somebody who needs to go get flour from the mill, and the millman said, well, you, you don't give me flour, go get me some oil. Okay, go get me, I want some oil so I can give to the, okay. Well, if you need oil, go get this, right? That kind of chaining, that's what you have here. That's the exact same technique used here. But the chaining is a lot, is not as obvious for us as it would have been for the Israelites because we're not familiar with their culture. But let's keep on going, I'm sure you how this works. So now, we're talking about slaves. Okay, and therefore you must be able to protect them and to keep them alive, right? You cannot return them. All right, so now we're on the subject of slavery. By the way, if you make a vow, don't think you can pay it by becoming a prostitute. What's the connection? Well, back then, there were, amongst many cultures around them, Folks who were slaves, prostitutes in temples. And they were paid. So now, from one slavery to another. You see that? The connection is always there. There is a common theme between every one of these passages. The common theme isn't the same. If you take three of them, chain them together, you will not see that theme occurring in all three of them. It actually, from the tail of the second, you move on to the third. That's what you have here. So we're talking about the fact that you cannot use this to support your vows. And then he moves to talk about lending an interest. How is that connected? In the case of lending an interest, this is not general lending. Israel had a fairly simple economy. It was agrarian that is based on farming. So it was not an economy at the time used where you have banks and people who are using money to make more money. Hence, all the lending that was taking place was taking place because somebody had an emergency. So it's a charitable lending. And he's basically saying if you're lending out of charity, you cannot charge interest. So what's the connection? The connection is that if you actually charge interest to someone who's already poor, what are you turning him into? Slave. Slave. Do you see the connection? All right. That's one, but there is another echo as well, which is that lending with interest 
as a crime is similar to prostituting yourself. So the severity of it. And that's how he changed those things. All right? Now, he moves on now to talk about timely fulfillment of vows. Why? Because two topics earlier, he was talking about vows. If you take a vow, you cannot pay him with that kind of money. Then he talks about lending, and now he talks about timely fulfillment of vows. Guess what? If you're poor and you took a loan from somebody, what are you supposed to do with that loan? Timely fulfillment. You see that? Right? The prior topic was talking about vows. The third one changed both. Yes. So if you make a promise to God, you better fulfill it on time. That's what this is about. And the first one is if you make a promise, you have to fulfill it. You can't go get yourself money by prostituting yourself. Meaning the fundamental idea here is that the mean, the, the, the end never justifies the means. You, the means must be good. Yeah? Then he chains it with another topic, which is don't lend with interest. Why? Because this is like prostitution. Right? And then the third one, if you have a vow to God, you better fulfill it on time. Who's he addressing that to? To the poor. Pay it back on time. Because we are all poor before God. You see how it's enjoyable to the mind to see how these, chains, these topics chain together? Right? There's a definite enjoyment, especially if you're hearing somebody presenting this to you. Right? There's a little bit of a puzzle game going on in your head that you're seeing the connection, then it's pleasant. So therefore, you retain better. This is, this is essentially the secret behind the way this whole book is structured. It isn't structured the way we want it to be structured. Typically, we want things structured topically. We want a table of index. Okay, we want all the things that are similar to be in one place. Why? Because if we forget, what can we do? Go back, look at the text. The book is your memory, right? But in oral cultures, there are no books. So you cannot rely on that mechanism. You have to use a different strategy. And that's what is happening here. It's embedded into the structure of the entire teaching. It's a teaching, totally. Yes, indeed, he is using it in different ways, but it's the same concept repeated from one topic chain into the other. So you start from the first one, and he's talking about who cannot get into the assembly. Now, that's very easy to remember because it's really important. Then from there, he talks about the sanctity military camp. All right. What is the connection we said? It's the purity. So purity relates both of them. The third one is asylum for escaped slaves. And the connection there is that you go to a military camp, you're at war. When you're at war, there are going to be people who from the other side who wants to join you. What are you supposed to do with them, right? Yes, indeed. I think it's, um, it's fair to say that we need to hear some, you know, we need repetition before we can memorize something. And this is sort of a subtle way of repeating the same um, teaching using different situations, right? And then after that, he moves into prohibition of prostitution. Now, notice all those, actually, from the first one all the way through is purity, right? So the first one is purity, the second is purity, the third is purity. I mean, the third is asylum, the way you receive people. And then he goes back to the concept of purity in the fourth. Then the, the fifth one is also purity of intent. The sixth one is purity of intent as well in regards to God, right? Then eat your fill of grapes. Now he's talking about, oh, if you cross a field, you can take whatever you need. If you're hungry, you can eat, right? Okay, how's, how's that connected, right? 
How is that connected to timely fulfillment of vows? Well, this one may not be completely obvious, so hold on. We'll, we'll come back to it. But I want to point out to you the connection between eat your fill of grapes and forbidden marriage. Right? So here's the idea. If you walk through a field, you can grab and eat your fill. You cannot take with you. Get it? So therefore, there is something forbidden here. You're not supposed to take with you what is not yours. Oh, by the way, let's talk about what you're not supposed to take, what is not yours. Forbidden marriage. Okay? And we'll jump into that topic. And then from there, now that we told you about forbidden marriage, we told you what you're not supposed to do, let's switch it and tell you what you can do. If you're newly married, these are the things you can do. All right? So this is eight, and then nine, deferral of the new husband, I'm sorry, this is nine, deferral of the new husband for military service. Ten, vital implements may not be distrained to compel repayment of a loan. Huh. What is that? And how is that connected? Here's a situation. If you have someone who loaned you money, right, and he's not paying back, the idea is that you can go and start taking things away from him. Moses is saying, you cannot take what is really vital for him, what is essential for his life, livelihood. You cannot do that. How is that connected with the prior topic? Well, what was the prior topic? The prior topic was that if you're newly married, you are not going to go to war for the first whole year so you can stay with your wife. We're not going to take you away from what is essential to you. You see that? And now we move on talking about, okay, here's somebody who needs his livelihood, and we cannot take him away from what is important for him, his livelihood. So therefore, there is a connection, there's an echo. Your wife is your livelihood. You see that? All right. So it's a very complex process of teaching because it relies on these connections, on these echoes. Whereas we have been conditioned to have everything spoon-fed. Right? Step number one, and step number two, and step number three. We need to have somebody make all these connections obvious for us to be able to understand. Our mind is not able to think parabolically. Okay? We, we are not trained to think parabolically. Parabolically would be if I were to say to you, here's an example. If, if you told me... So, so my uncle, not the most educated of men, but if you were to go to him and tell him, let's say he's waiting for a meal to be served, and it's not happening, and it's been delayed, he will then say, he will exclaim, this is what he would say in Lebanese, I'll say it in English, he'll say, what, a boat? Got it, right? What, a boat? That's what he would say. So, B-O-A-T, correct, the Ship. What? A boat? That's what he would say. What does he mean by that? He means, is that dinner so complex that you're actually building a boat that I have to wait that long for it? That's what he means. But he doesn't say all that. He doesn't analyze it for you. Right? So remember this. Semitic cultures are not analytical. They're parabolic. This is how they work. We just throw a thought way out there and believe and trust that you'll be able to catch it. And there's pleasure in doing that. 
and discovering the meaning of what's being said. This is all built into this text. That's why it's so hard for us to read it, because we're so analytical. We need things to be completely laid out for us, step by step. Let's miss no details and make sure everything is explained. That's why it's so hard. But if you have a parabolical mind, it's a lot easier to catch the meaning, provided you just take the time to read it. And that's the other thing I want to point out to you. This calls for contemplation. You can't catch those, those uh, connections, those chains, just by reading them quickly as if it's a newspaper. We're, we're impatient in our reading. We want, we want things to be so well explained that I don't have to make any effort to try and understand what's being said. Whereas that kind of text calls for contemplation. You have to sit down and then ponder what is being said to find these connections. I'll give another example, actually, that comes from the Bedouins. The Bedouins used to have this game, I don't know if they still do or not, called Under the Tent. The idea was they would all sit under the tent and there would be a poet. And the poet would say a verse. And as the saying goes, the one who doesn't understand stays. You can't leave the tent until you figure out what was meant. So here's one example. And the question is, this is an example of a verse addressed to a sheikh who is the head of a tribe. And the question is, is the poet praising him or insulting him? And the poet says this, If in winter times guests come upon you suddenly, your clothes will be white as snow. If in winter times guests come upon you suddenly, your clothes, your garments will be white as snow. Here's the question. Is he insulting him or is he praising him? Those of you who think he's praising him, raise your hand. All right. Those of you who think he's insulting him, raise your hand. I'm going to ask you why. Why do you think he's insulting him? We're in a desert. Bedouin? Okay, yes. He's not going to cook for them. That's it. Okay, let me explain it to you. I'm going to unravel it now. You are a Bedouin. You're part of this whole culture. Hospitality is sacred. Hospitality is sacred. Somebody comes upon you unexpectedly. What do you do? I mean, we see it in scriptures as well. I mean, uh, what's her name? Um, um, the wife of Jacob. The one he loved. Rachel. Rachel. What did she do when she saw all these men come with all their camels? She gave water to all the camels. You know how much effort it takes to actually make a camel drink? That thing is like a compressed reservoir on foot. They drink. There's no tomorrow. And she made all of Right? It's... Hospitality. Now, it's winter time, so it's cold. These guests are coming. What are you supposed to do if you receive them? You have to cook. If you cook, what do you have to do? You start what? So what is going to happen to your clothes? Yeah. Yeah, get dirty. He's basically telling him you're a Scrooge. That's what he's telling him. See, this is parabolical thinking. I don't give you the whole analytical thing. I don't analyze it for you. I just throw a curveball at you and let you catch it. And we don't think this way at all. We don't exercise that kind of thinking here. Very little. Actually, we do it, but very, very little. We as in the West, yes. We as in the United States. Yeah. So this is why it's hard for us to understand these. And, and likewise, I'll point out to you, that it is very hard for us to understand what Jesus is saying because Jesus is also speaking parabolically. 
He told them a parable. Hmm? All right. So that's why you can see how uh, this whole thing is structured here. Now, we move from vital and may not be distrained, right? You can't take what's really important to somebody to kidnapping. What's the connection? He's basically saying if, you cannot kidnap anybody for any reason. Why is he listing that right after talking about somebody who's not paying his dues? You go and you cannot take what's essential to him. Exactly. You see the connection? You're starting to see how it connects? All right, that's how it connects. So let's keep on going. And then dealing with leprosy. Ah, this one is a little more subtle. You see, there are two levels of connections you create. One is direct, like the one we just saw. It's like almost a, you, you transpose from one to the other, right? In this case, you can't take what is essential to someone's life. Well, obviously, you can't take himself and treat him as if he's an object and sell him. Like in the other case, you wanted to take some of the objects that this guy owned and sell them so you can get part of the money that, you, that is owed. In this case, you're going to take the guy himself and sell him. Right? You see the transition, right? Make sense? But how do you transition from there to leprosy? Yes. In the case of leprosy, he's basically saying, if you're a leper, stay out. You're unclean. Understood. I understand that the person must not kidnap, therefore you have to treat them with dignity. But in the case of the leper, he's basically telling people who have leprosy to stay out of the camp. No, he's saying you must stay out of the camp. They kick you. They will kick him out. It's the opposite. No, no. Here's what happens. He's basically saying, if you actually kidnap somebody, it's like leprosy. It's not a direct connection, but it's a connection of... He did it before also. It's a connection of at, sort of at the level of what, what that sin looked like. So he's giving him a visual of what it is to do something like that. So it helps you remember, oh, wow, if I kidnap somebody, I'm like a leper. Forget it. Right. So treat somebody who kidnaps someone as if he's a leper. You have to kick him out. Get it? All right. Oh, yeah. It's, the severity of the crime is very high. So that's what he's indicating here. Okay, then he moved back to timely payment of wages. He's basically saying if you have people working for you, you have to pay them on time. You cannot withhold their payment, which is kind of a little bit like kidnapping, not exactly, but you're essentially holding their lives in your hand. They can't eat if you don't pay them. Those are daily people who live from day to day. That's all they have. Yeah? Why? I mean, you would think that the proper order would have been talk about kidnapping and talk about holding the wages and maybe talk about leprosy. Why did he sandwich it between the two? Because the idea is that both of these kidnapping and withholding wages is just like leprosy. Both of them are really bad. Don't do it. You see that? So the, the idea of leprosy is bleeding both up and down. Yeah? And then he moves to transgressional punishment forbidden. Huh, that's interesting. What is he saying? He's, basic, he's, saying, he's saying that if a man commits a crime, you cannot punish his children. That was some, something done fairly commonly, you know, either vendettas or other things. You can go punish other members of the family. Moses is saying you cannot do that. Every man will be punished for his own crime. Now, granted, God does punish the descendants of one man. But that's God's. Don't think, don't think that you and I can actually do that. You can't. 
So what's the connection with timely payment of wages? So um, the idea is, again, that this transgressional punishment, if you, if you go ahead and, remember, if you go and kill someone who, hasn't, who is innocent, what have you done? You've taken away his life, right? It's just like kidnapping. You see that echo again? So all these are all connected together. And they all center around leprosy. That they are very, very serious sins you should not commit. And then protecting aliens and the fatherless from judicial mistreatment and widows from disdain, from the strain of clothing. Same idea. So they're all, this is a cluster of behavior that should never be done by an Israelite. Because they're all very bad. Which then leads on to limits on flogging. Why? Because now he brought in the judicial. You have to protect the widow. You have to protect the orphan. You must be a just judge. And oh, by the way, on the topic of just judge, when you punish someone, the, the punishment must be judged. Uh, just. You cannot allow someone to be flogged more than 40 times. That would be the maximum allowed. And the flogging must be proportional to the crime, and it must be done in front of a judge. So, so that the crime may fit, the punishment may fit the crime. That's what he's saying here. And, and then he moved on to not muzzling an ox when it thrashes. What he's saying is that if an ox is working in the field, um, the ox, when hungry, and if sees grains, will stop and eat. The farmers are tempted to muzzle the ox to prevent the ox from eating. Why is he, again, using this image? Because it's striking, Right? It's an injustice done to the ox. So on the literal sense, the immediate sense, don't do that. Don't be cruel to animals. But on the second sense, it connects back to flogging someone unjustly. So you use this image to help you remember the other. Yes, same thing. Absolutely. The timely workers, you can muzzle them as well. I am only showing you the chaining that happens immediately. But that does not mean that there isn't echoes that cross over. Right? When you read the text with that kind of mindset, you start to see that echo playing back and forth. And that helps you then understand and remember the text as you read it. This is why this book sounds strange to our ears, but in reality it isn't. It has its own internal logic. All right, and then, then he moves from there to talk about leveret marriage. Okay, the leveret marriage is what? You're... A man was, is married to a woman, and he dies, leaving no children. It is the duty of the brother to um, marry his, uh, the widow of his brother and bring forth a child, which will take on the name of his brother. And this text is saying, if a man does not do that, this is what the widow would do to him. So if he's not doing it, what is he doing to his brother? Just, that's it, you're getting it. He's muzzling him. You see that? Um, By the way, to the Israelites, the reason why they did it is because there was already an, an understanding that those who die are not completely dead. And by remembering their names, you're helping ease their pain. So, by allowing their name to be perpetuated, you're helping ease the pain of your brother. And by not doing it, you're muzzling him like an ox, preventing him from eating, therefore you're increasing his suffering. 
You see how it connects? Yeah? Make sense? All right. And then um, he talks about an improper intervention in a fight, which is kind of really interesting. Um, he's essentially saying that if two men are fighting and one woman wants to help her husband and she grabs the other by his private parts, then her hand should be cut off. Why is he bringing that up? See, it's the flip side. In the other case, the woman was the victim. Right? She's the victim of the brother. In this case, it's the brother, but not taken in a in the consanguine sign, not, 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 not taken as if it's a blood brother, but generally speaking, the word brother applies to everybody. He's the one who's the victim because of what she's doing to him. That's the echo between the two. So it's a flip. That's another technique that is used to kind of help you remember the relationship between two of those images. Then uh, he, he talks about honest way, ways and measures because... Essentially, what he's saying is that in her behavior, she cheated. And we'll talk a little bit more uh, why this is why, why is, why is it, why did he, Moses teach it this way? Why did he say that her behavior was punishable? And finally, he tells them about to remember the Amalekite aggression. Why? Because the Amalekites essentially were trying to prevent Israel from having offsprings. They wanted to eliminate Israel, right? which echoes back to the text we just read. That makes sense? Does that help? Yes. So in the Old Testament, the thought of the afterlife was developing, and it developed slowly. But you see it in multiple texts where there are a uh, connection to those who are in Sheol. The understanding was that Sheol was a place, the abode of the dead. It was not hell. It was not heaven. It was just a place where um, the soul would go to and then would stay there, and there are no pleasure associated with it. But gradually, the sense that uh, you, know, you can ease the punishment or you can ease the pain of those who are died start to develop, and we see it um, taking its uh, shape with the Maccabees who, as you know, in the book of the Maccabees, the brothers uh, the requ- recommended that prayers be said and money be sent to the temple on behalf of the souls of the dead to alleviate their pain. I don't want to you know, detract too much from the text to talk about what Luther, Luther did with Scripture. It's a little bit of a complex topic. What I can say very briefly is that obviously he did it because he wanted to take out anything that required prayers for the dead because that's connected to work and and so he wanted to sort of clear his and um, clear the Bible from that, and he relied on the fact that in Jerusalem the uh, Hebrew Bible did not have a number of those texts, whereas in fact the Alexandria, the Bible in Alexandria did have them. And today, because of the uh, archaeological digs, especially in Qumran, we're finding uh, pieces of those texts that he took out in Hebrew. But that's a different question. All right. Now, what I would like to do is just go over some of those texts and bring your attention. Um, all right. So let's go through these texts you know, quickly and just highlight some important points. Like I said, the assembly in verse 2 through 9 of chapter 23 is the National Governing Assembly. And it convenes to conduct public business such as war, crowning a king, adjudicating legal cases, distributing land, and worship. So it is synonymous with community. 
And it is interesting to note that the same structure is also found in Athens, and the name of that structure was Ecclesia, right, from which we get church. What is important to keep in mind is that that structure did never meant people, ever. Not among the Hebrews, not among the Athenians, not among the Babylonians. It never meant people, as in a vaguely connected bunch of people standing out there. It always implied hierarchy, always implied structure, never one without the other. So, when you think about the nature of the church, it is a mistake to say, we are the church, we're not the church. All the Catholics living today are not the church. Does that sound obvious to you, or do you want me to explain why? All right, because all the Catholics living today do not, I'm talking right now on earth, do not include the Blessed Virgin Mary. Therefore, by definition, we're not the church. Make sense? We don't include all the saints and angels, do we? We're not the church, yes? So that is a false notion. Run from it. It's poison to the mind. It detracts you from obedience. The church, first of all, is a mystery. How do we know it's a mystery? How do you know that the church is a mystery? Yes, it is true that from the point of the faith, it's different than the political view that people have. But how do we know from a faith standpoint that the church is a mystery? I'm going to make it easy for you. You profess that Sunday after Sunday. What do we say in the creed? Stop right there. Why do we say we believe if we could explain the church, could, do we have to believe in the church? No, it's a mystery. She is a mystery. We can never fully understand the church. Yes? She is the bride of Christ. She is all holy, all pure, all perfect. We're not. We're not the church. Yes? Anybody has issues with that? Now is the time to talk about this. Yes, we're not the body of Christ. We are members. That's the proper way of saying it. We are members in the body of Christ. But the body of Christ includes all the saved in heaven. That's what the body of Christ is. Yes, the body of Christ is all the saved in heaven and will be complete at the end of time. Some of us possibly will not make it. Does that make sense? Yeah. That kind of horizontal discourse is poison to the soul. It does not focus you on the cross. It focuses you on us, a bunch of sinners. Not a good idea. We are members of the church, yes. We are the children of the church. That's a good way of saying it. She's our mother. Notice we don't use that language anymore. The church is our mother. As our mother, she teaches us. She holds the truth. We don't. We owe her obedience. We owe her gratitude. That's the proper language. That's what Christ expects from us. Not, we are the church. So, be very careful of that language. It is not good for the soul at all. It pushes you away from a filial, tender love to the church. Do you want to know how 
Do you want to know what is, the, what is one important sign that you actually love Jesus Christ? You love his church. You love his church. The martyrs died for the church. The bride of Christ. That's who we must love with filial love and obey the church. Need I remind you of what Padre Pio did to one of his friends? When Padre Pio was put on the index, he could not hear confession, he could not celebrate Mass for 10 years. One of his best friends came and wrote a defense that he wanted to send to the Vatican and say why Padre Pio should not. What did Padre Pio do? He threw him out. He threw him out. He was furious. And he told him, how dare you attack my mother? That's who the church is. She's our mother. So, and that goes all the way back to these structures that I mentioned to you here in the book of Deuteronomy. And the idea behind the first thing we saw, restriction of entry into the assembly, is that some people may not become member of, members of this governing body, this governing assembly. There are people who could not be members of this governing assembly. Guess what? In the church, there are people who cannot be members of the governing assembly. Namely, women. They can't be priests. Right? That structure was already present under Moses, and it, is, it continues to, to, to be so today. Now, <clears throat> not everybody could have eligibility for full citizenship. You could not be a citizen of Israel if... You did not come from a family, from a mom and a dad. Now, translation today, if, we, if you don't consider yourself, if you don't think of yourself being a child of the church, how could you be a member of the church? Right? Same, same principles, but now obviously taking their full reality. All right, let's keep on moving. Yes. Yes. See, this is why we speak of the church as being the church glorious, triumphant in heaven, the church suffering in purgatory, and the church militant on earth. So here on earth, we are in an embassy, essentially. This is the embassy of heaven. The embassy is open. A lot of people come in. A lot of people go out. Oh, we? as yeah, No, as no, as no, as no, no. Again, the church, the mystery of the church transcends all the believers. It is something greater than all the believers. We don't fully understand it. And I doubt we will understand it completely in heaven. What is this notion of the bride of Christ? It, it, no, 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 no. We collectively are not the bride of Christ. We're not. This is not about the sum being greater than the parts or any of that stuff. It's a mystery we cannot fully comprehend. We're just going to be able to admire and, and ponder and enjoy that view of what the church is. But we cannot fully understand. In fact, I'll give you another example. Uh, in, the bull of, um, in, the, in the bull that confirmed that Our Lady was assumed body and soul to heaven, the Pope wrote that even Our Lady does not understand the height of glory to which God raised her. Even Mary does not understand the height of glory to which God raised her. Pardon? That is affirmed by the Holy Father. 
All that matters to me is that he affirmed it. I'll worry later about how he knows that, but he knows that. That's the truth, and that's enough for me. But the point I'm making here is that this is an example where Our Lady, in a sense, is a mystery even unto herself. It's incredible, right? So the church is the same thing. It's something we fully don't understand. That's why the creed tells us we believe in the Catholic Church. It's an act of faith, not an act of reason only. We believe in the Catholic Church, in the community of saints, in the forgiveness of sins. They're on the same level. Somebody understands forgiveness of sins here? Do you understand how that works, the mechanics of it? How do we understand an act of God? Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, the church is on that same level. We've brought her down. Why? Because Satan hates women. That's why. And he knows once he attacks the church, and once he, we, we, he makes us say it instead of she, once we start seeing her as, as a mother, and we see her as an, just an institution, he has won half the battle. So let's keep on moving. As far as the, as the camp is concerned, the intent is that when you are at war, you must keep yourself at all times clean. Now, are we at war? Are we in a military camp? We are, yes? We are in a spiritual battle. So that in command is also true for us. We must keep ourselves clean. How do we keep ourselves clean? Right? So two things. First, examination of conscience. The more you know about yourself, the more you can keep yourself clean. So every day, five minutes, ten minutes at the end of your day, give thanks to God. Examination of conscience doesn't mean torture yourself. First, thank God for everything he gave you today. Rejoice when he's given you. Then... Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see the failings, those failings, not all of them, that he wants you to see. And thank God he doesn't want us to see all our failings at the same time. We can't handle that. One or two or three things. Maybe I spoke too brusquely to my wife. Maybe I was impatient. Maybe Then I have a resolution to say, I'll do better tomorrow. Well, that is a way to close the day, right? Because I'm preparing myself to stand before the judgment of God. And then confession. And the argument for confession is really simple. It is not complicated. It goes something like this. Do you shower once a year? Anybody? Please raise your hand. This is a fallible body. This body will decay and will be eaten by worms. Your soul is eternal. Don't you think you should also wash your soul? Then there's the argument, but I don't have to do the confession. I just can sit down and talk to God on my own and ask him to forgive me and forgive me. Yeah, God will forgive you. But see, this is akin somebody going into a shower, pressing these buttons, and then five minutes later, hearing a beep saying, you're clean. Nothing happened. Water didn't come down. There was no soap, nothing. It's just he says, you're clean. How would you feel about that kind of shower? I'm using some sort of invisible ray to clean you while you're clothed. Can, can you tell me that there's not going to be a doubt in your head that says maybe that didn't work? You know how it is when you're crossing the street and you press on that light? There's somebody standing next to you. What do they do? They come press it three times. Right? You're taking you want to the elevator. You, you, you press on the. What do you do next? How do you know you're clean? 
Here's another example. You had a fight with your wife, your husband, your friend, your sister. You sit in your room, and then you psychically direct these thoughts to the person saying, I forgive you, please forgive me. That's all you do. And then you step out. Is that going to work? I'm not talking about whether this person received them or not. We know that she didn't, but just for you. Is that going to work? We need confirmation. We need to be confirmed in the truth all the time. You make a cake. You invite friends. They take a piece of the cake. You ask them, how is it? What do they say? Delicious. It's good. What do you do three minutes later? How is it? Is, is it good? Why do we do that? We need to be confirmed in the truth. It's part of who we are. So, when you go into confessional, you will hear the priest standing in persona Christi. This is Jesus Christ himself talking to you and saying, and I absolve you, not forgive you, absolve you from your sins. They're gone. You have confirmation. And the other reason, when we sin, we hurt the body of Christ, not just my relationship with Jesus. I've hurt my brothers and sisters. So I go and confess before the representative of the assembly, the priest, and I'm also asking forgiveness from all of you. Right? In the Latin rite, that's what they that's the confiteor, right? That's why you go to confession. Not the least of which that Jesus himself commanded it. I won't say anything more about that. So Again, please, I urge you, especially as we enter into Advent and preparing for the coming of the Lord, His uh, glorious, His, uh, His um, joyful birth, to consider confession and work your way so you can go every week to confession. All right. So it's very interesting that about this camp, two, um, two rabbis stated that the reason why the army was required to keep the camp permanently holy was so that the soldiers constantly be aware of God's presence and their dependence on Him for victory. So there's also a teaching pattern, right? So if you pray every day, if you have a certain process where you actually pray, you remember God's presence, if you come into the church and you recollect yourself and you know you're in a holy place, it teaches you also the discipline to stand before God. And uh, unfortunately today, we live in a very permissive society, so it's, e it's up to each one of us to make sure we develop that discipline. Otherwise, it's very easy to let go. So we talked about the runaway slaves, and uh, that particular teaching flies in the face of all the ancient Near Eastern laws, because they had international treaties. If the slave escaped from one country to another, he could be extradited and sent back to the country from which he came. And that law ran, fl flew in the face of all the other countries, saying, no, he has right for asylum, asylum if he escapes. And that's because the dignity of the human being cannot be uh, compromised. Yes. Yes, thank you for bringing this up. That's another really important point about confession. You see, Satan is constantly trying to trip us, constantly trying to make us fall. When you go to confession, when you go to confession and confess your sins, you're kicking him out from your own conscience. That's what you're doing. 
you kick him out from your own conscience. He has less of a hold on you. So that's another really important element of confession. Thank you for bringing this up. All right. Um, one more point I would wanted to bring to your attention and is that the prohibition of prostitution, which is in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3, is considered an abomination. That word appears there. And it also appears for the forbidden remarriage. Now, the forbidden remarriage is a really interesting one. Here's the idea. A man was married with a woman, and he found something in her he didn't like, so he divorces her. So she marries another man. That man divorces her. What this law does, it says the first man is not allowed to remarry his wife. Okay? So let me repeat the scenario because it's a little bit complicated. Man A marries woman. He doesn't like her after a while. He divorces her. Man B marries the same woman. And after a while, he divorces her. Man A is not allowed to remarry the same woman. Ever. Ever. Why? Why? Two reasons are given. The first one is to make sure that there is not going to be wife swapping going on. We haven't, we haven't invented anything under the sun. So the idea is you have one couple and the other, so they divorce, marry, divorce, remarry. So it's essentially a protection against prostitution. That's what this thing is all about. Right? The other also is because if he does that, then the idea of adultery seems more acceptable. Even though it's not adulterous, but it looks like it. And just by introducing that habit, you open the door. Right? By the way, among the Muslims, some Muslims, uh, presumably I think more the Shia than the Sunni, although I'm not completely sure, there is a type of wedding called muta. Muta, right? The Shia. The idea is you can have a temporary uh, marriage. Well, let's just say it's temporary. The idea is that you're living in some city, and as a man, you're not supposed to be by yourself, so you can marry temporarily this woman for six months. And obviously, when you break the marriage, you pay her something for her being your wife for that period. Mota means pleasure, enjoyment. So it's a form of prostitution. That's called a spade a spade. And it's part of the... The, it's legal, yeah. It is allowed. So, um, I thought I'd point that out. So, because uh, remember, these laws were not supposed to be permanent. Jesus told them so. This whole idea of divorce is a mess. As soon as you introduce divorce, you're introducing a huge mess in a society. You're destroying it. This was not, it's not a permanent law. Obviously, the law, the, 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 no, the law of Moses is not permanent. We don't live by it, do we? We're not living by the law of Moses today. Right? Well, that's a different story. But in the, in the plan of salvation, that was to, supposed to be temporary. In fact, it was the law to be so cumbersome that somebody would say, Lord, can't you do a little bit better? This is so complicated. It's like our tax code. You get it? No, it's not a mistake at all. Jesus came and abrogated all of this and established the new covenant. And he established seven sacraments and simplified all of this. And raise the bar morally. Why? Because he has the power to do so. The whole intent of this whole law was to give him something that eventually somebody would kind of wake up and smell the hummus and say, you know what, that doesn't make any sense. 
How can we live this way? Don't eat this and don't eat that. And if you do this, you're impure. And if you step here, you're not pure. And this and that and the other. And all those laws of divorce. And, and instead, what did they do? The exact opposite. They defined holiness or righteousness, actually, by being, to observe, being able to observe all 632 laws. If you observe all of them, right, they turned themselves into computers. That's what they did. They went down to the syntax. It says, do this, I'll do this. Do this, do that. Do this, do that. Da, 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 da. So I'm holy. And here comes this rabbi from I don't know where with his funny accent. And he's telling me to break all those laws that I lived all my life to obey. Don't take it from me. Take it from St. Paul. This was not supposed to be the case. It's like I told you. You have a kid at home and he's not doing what he's supposed to do. He's not obeying. So what do you do? You complicate his life. You start setting laws. Okay, no computer from this time to this time. No, you cannot add this. You can't watch a movie. You can't see the friends. No, 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 no. You're pining it up in the hope of what? Him waking up and thinking, okay, that doesn't make any sense. That must be a better way. And coming and talking to you and say, okay, I want to make it, I want it different. That's what God was waiting for them to do. Come and talk to me. We are all in the same boat. So, in conclusion, today I didn't, spend, I didn't want to spend a lot of time going through each of those laws in details. I encourage you to go back and read them now. But I wanted to show you how they were connected and just point out a couple of things. As I said earlier about abomination, this abomination that happens in that business of um, prohibition of prostitution and forbidden marriages, both of which touch on what? The role of a man and a woman in marriage. Anytime, anytime you see a sin that actually touches the core of what a man is and what a woman is in a relationship, the word abomination shows up. It's the highest level of sin in the eyes of God because they deform, attack, detract the image of God that is in us. Hence, the, the opposite statement would be that the best thing we can do is to reflect God's Trinitarian image in us, in our families, and in our own persons. God bless you. Let's um, stand and um, finish with a word of prayer, and we'll take some questions. Yes, please. That's a very good question. So the question is, the people who uh, um, forbade Padre Pio from um, carrying on his priestly duties, whether the church, in fact, they were members of the Vatican, and they were expressing the will of the church because, you see, the church wanted him to become a saint. And there is not a better way than to take away from him what he loved to do the most and see him grow in all the other virtues. And he understood that. That's why he always obeyed. Yeah. Now, were they doing... Were they doing what was right in God's eyes? Probably not, because they didn't understand. But presumably, you, you, we might think that they were being prudent. I don't think they were necessarily evil, just didn't understand what this thing what was, what was happening with him. And, and oftentimes, the church works that way. So that's why she's a mystery. St. Francis completely understood that. He went to Rome, and he wanted an audience with the Pope, and he would not get an audience with the Pope. What did he do? He went up, and he did not rebel. He did not start to accuse people of being too rich and do this and do that. None of that. Brothers, let us go pray. He prayed all night. The Pope had a dream.
the church is a mystery. Yeah. And she's our mom. She nourishes us. She feeds us. She gives us everything we need. We, in return, give her our love. Yeah. Very good question. So the, the question is, Jesus said, not one of I, iota, not one dot of the law will pass away. That is the Ten Commandments. That is the law that God gave. Remember, this is the law that Moses is giving. Right? There's a difference between the two. Correct. That law passed away. But the Ten Commandments will never pass away. That, this we call the natural law. Not the law of nature, the natural law, because this is what is inscribed in our nature by God when he created us. Yeah. Yes, very good. So the question is, if so we're members of the church because of our baptism. Take someone who's baptized in the Trinitarian formula outside of the Catholic church. Is that person a member of the church? Absolutely. So uh, we have to understand that the visible church, right, so... Two things about the Catholic Church, and this is dogma, by the way. What I'm saying to you right now is dogma, it's defeated. You must believe. You may not understand, but you must believe. There is no salvation outside the Catholic Church. This is dogma. I'll repeat it. There is no salvation outside the Catholic Church. Now, we have to understand that correctly. It doesn't mean what people think it means. It doesn't mean that in order to be saved, you must be inscribed, officially inscribed, in a register in the Catholic Church. Now, it'd be nice if you did that. It'd be very good if you did that, actually, because you can grow in glory. But that's not what it means. It means that if the Catholic Church was not on earth, there would be no salvation. And it means that all the good things, all the good thoughts, all the good actions that anybody out there is today engaged in flows from the altar. The church nourishes the world. Just as in Eden, there was one river that split into four that flowed from the mountain, splitting into four river, nourishing the entire world. The graces of God flow from the altar. And it goes out, and the Holy Spirit wants to touch the heart of men and bring all mankind to God. So therefore, every good action out there is claimed by the church. Hence, as members of the Catholic Church, we must affirm the good wherever we see it. Wherever we see it. So, if we have a tendency of being partisan politically, we have an issue. It goes against our Catholicism. If President Barack Obama tomorrow does something good, I'll affirm the good. It doesn't matter. Because that good comes from God. And who am I to say to my mother, the church, or to God, how did you allow that man to do something good? Jesus said it explicitly, do not judge. That's not for you. You must be vehicles of mercy. You have to bring my grace, my salvation to people. That's what you're supposed to do. The rest is mine. I'll deal with it. So we affirm the good wherever we see it. I was always very impressed. And, and that's why John Paul II is, in many ways, my model. Because when he dealt with feminists who, were, who wanted you know, women priests in the whole, the whole nine yard, the first thing he did in his writing is to affirm all the good they did. And they did a lot of good. But he recognized that without any problem, completely peacefully, because he saw the good 
And the good is the Holy Spirit. The good is God. It's the face of Jesus. So how could we not affirm it? Whatever it is, you affirm the good. So therefore, you can have a Protestant, an Orthodox, an atheist, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist. Everybody's called. And you don't know what their journey is. And you don't know what God has in mind for them. But what we know is when they're in heaven, everybody's Catholic. There is no more Hindu, no more Buddhist, no more Orthodox, no more Protestant. They're only Catholics. Why? Because the truth is one. You can't have somebody thinking, well, Blessed Virgin Mary is just a vessel. She's not important. And somebody thinking she's the mother of God and she's the most... The truth is fractured. Well, not in heaven. The truth is one. Right? Yes? Okay, very good question. The truth, would they know it before or after death? Before. After death, there is no more choice. Uh, before you die. Period. Yes. Yes. There are cases where someone, God, will intervene directly. God is not bound by the sacraments. God can intervene whichever way he wants to, to do. And in some cases, he can um, give a person on their deathbed abundant graces for them to accept him before they die. Yes. Yes, so Moses did not write these books. That we know for a fact. But he is, in my mind anyway, the source of all of them. Uh, and he definitely was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yes. Correct. That's in the book of Ezekiel. The water flows from the altar. So that's the grace that flows from the altar that we all receive, which is the grace of Jesus Christ. But the grace is not separated from the truth. You must know the truth so you can receive that grace. Those two go hand in hand. And the guardian, the one who keeps the deposit of the truth, the deposit of the faith, is the Catholic Church. That is the magisterium, the Pope, and the bishops who are all in union with him. Yes? Um, I don't know if that is... uh, so, So again, all these teachings are not at the same level of Scripture, right? So these are called private revelations. We can never put them at the same level of public revelation, the scriptures, right? And the teachings of the church. Um, I would highly doubt that that is the case because we know from the teachings of St. Thomas and others that when you undergo your personal judgment, when I undergo my personal judgment, if I am being condemned to hell, I don't see Jesus. Because the vision of Jesus is part of the joy of the elect, so that is, th- those who are damned are deprived from that vision. So I doubt that Jesus appears to everybody three times before they die. Uh, that, that, now, that's me. I'm not infallible. So I'm just giving you my thought. Now, it could be that for those who maybe say the child of divine mercy or, or are putting his hope in him, maybe he does that. I don't know. Yes. Sure. That, that comes straight from the book of Revelation, right? In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, when Satan was thrown down, from, uh, from the heavens, he, he put one foot on the ground, one foot on the water, symbolizing that he was both inside the church and outside. The water is always the land of the Gentiles. The ground is Israel. So he is basically claiming dominion for both. And scripture tells us in chapter 12, I think verse 17, that he hated the woman. Right. And... Obviously, Satan hates all of us, right? As much as he can. So never be afraid of doing something because maybe Satan is going to come after you. He already hates you as much as he can. He can't hate you anymore. 
But he has this particular hatred for women because of Mary, the one who defeated him. And so today, in this century, he's doing everything he can to disfigure the image of a woman. So you see it, for instance, in abortion, right? When a woman commits an abortion, uh, it's almost like a black mass. Because on the altar, the priest takes the host and says the words of Christ. This is my body, broken, so you may have life. In an abortion, a woman is saying to the child, this is your body, broken, so I may have the life I want. And then he's making them more and more think that it's better for them to, be, to look like men than to look like God. So the whole idea, therefore, is that we have being a mother is the lowest thing on a totem pole. Being a CEO, being an achiever is the highest thing. It's an inversion of values to disfigure the image of a woman. And he's doing a pretty good job at it this day. Yeah. So that, that's why. In, in a nutshell. There's a lot more I could say about this, but that's a, in a nutshell. Yes. Sure. So we have to realize that Mary, in her own person, and the Pope, represent the entire universal church. That's it. Mary, in her own person, and the Holy Father, together, represent the entire Holy Universal Church. Um, the church can exist without any of us here today. Right? Because she was born of Christ when he died on the cross. And she is the, this mystery that groups all the believers into something that gives glory to God, which we can't completely understand because it is of a divine mind. Right? And so, the, the key to keep remembering is the church is way bigger than what we see here. It's way bigger than the Vatican. It's way bigger than any one of us. She is the bride of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, she's animated by the Holy Spirit who guides her. And... Through her, the Holy Spirit speaks the truth to the whole world and guides the whole world. So, uh, she is... In, in truth, you can say this. You can say that uh, Christ came to save the whole world, and that is true. But in a more stronger... Um, there's a stronger way of putting the same thing, and that is to say that Christ came to save his church. Because at the end of the day, what is going to be those who are going to be truly alive are the members, are the children of the church. Okay? So we live in the world, essentially, where you know this fascination that people have with zombies. Well, it's because it's true. There are zombies among us. That is, people who are dead but seem alive. And I mean people who are spiritually dead. Right? So that is a reality that we live in. And those who are truly members of the Catholic Church are... Alive. Yes. Yes. The church is eternal. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's why we say the church is one, because Christ, uh, Paul affirmed that the marriage between a man and a woman are an image of the relation of Christ and his church. So therefore, when Christ said there is no divorce, obviously he also meant it for his church. That's why the church is one. He has only one bride. He doesn't have more than one. He will always have one. And hence, from the day that the church was brought in, she will remain uh, forever, for eternity. Yes, that's what will remain after this whole universe is gone. It is the church. So with that, let us close, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. 
We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.